Alright, let's see what happens this time. Take number two. Welcome to Belfast, dedicated to those deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. Um, today, I'm, I'm going to talk about something that's been on my mind for a long time, but I didn't have the words for it or examples for it or a way to really talk about it. So now we're going to we're going to try that. Uh, I have a central like theme that I'm trying to keep in some of these videos. I'll probably make a few more, hopefully more than a few more of something like this. Um but yeah, I just have some central concerns, I think that's the right word, with uh certain ways in which we approach the Bible. Uh that's basically been the whole theme of this channel and my mission here is to give people a better relationship with the Bible. And with that, the approach, the frame in which you view the Bible is, is very, very important. Um, now to start this off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go somewhere that maybe uh, surprise you. If you know me, this doesn't surprise you at all. But there is a, a, a clip from, from Michael Heiser that I wanted to show that kind of gets at the heart of, of what I'm going to try and do here today. And it's at a he did it's at the church that he now does his uh, his school ministry at or praying that he can get back to it if you have followed my other videos. But anyway, uh, he gave his uh, unseen realm talk there over just overview of the book like ten thousand feet ten thousand foot view. So I first uh, I don't know if that's how I first heard about him, but that's you know where I really started seeing what he was doing and got really intrigued. Led me to read almost everything he's written so far. But he makes this comment about approaching the Bible. You know, I often, again, I, I'm the guy, like I said yesterday, that's used to people looking at me like I got two heads, you know, because I, I just say things or, or take people to passages that they just want to ignore. Uh, but again, everything has a role. Everything, you know, that, there's, a, there's a place for that weird passage in the, in the scope, the, the, the spectrum of the supernatural epic that we call the Bible, the salvation history. But I often tell people, you know, when it comes to the Bible stories, again, what scholars would call prose narrative, okay? When it comes to the Bible stories, you would be better off if you read it like it was fiction. And people look at you like, you know what? Now, we know it's not fiction, but what do I mean? When you read a novel, your brain just sort of, there's something that clicks off in your brain that you read a novel differently than you would read a textbook for school. You know when you're reading a novel that the author is doing something intentionally to you. You know that I'm going to see this word again. I'm going to see this part of dialogue again. I'm going to see this room again. I'm going to see this place again. You know that you're being set up. Okay? You know that the writer is trying to steer you and direct you intentionally by imagery, by metaphor, by dialogue, by scenes, by vocabulary, you know he's going to use it on you again. Okay, because it's, it's, it's a novel, that's the way novels work. The, the novelist will take the reader, you know, and, and just bring them along and misdirect. I mean, you know something is being done intentionally to you as a reader. That's what the biblical writers do. Everything they do is intelligently done the way things are put in order, the vocabulary that's used, the scenes, things get, get repeated, they get repurposed in different parts of the Bible 
Biblical writers do that because when you're reading this, they want your mind to go over here and pick up that thought. And then when you're over here, they want you to go this other place. And they'll, they'll bring you to where they want you to be if you know what you're looking at. But we read the Bible like it's a textbook. You know, it, it's just totally different when you read a novel and your brain just sort of clicks into one or the other gear. So I, I think that's one of the more helpful things that, that you can do. Believe that the biblical text is actually intelligently put together and it's doing something to you. The writer has, has a goal, has a purpose, has an agenda, and that's not a bad word. It just means you're writing with a purpose. But we just say, oh, it's like a textbook, you know, assignments, text, you know, read this paragraph and there's questions at the end, you know. No, that is not the way scripture's written. Approaching the Bible is fiction. Well, why? Because reading all of the Bible one way isn't very helpful isn't true to the genre, and my thesis that I've been thinking about recently is something like, when we approach the Bible, we most often make genre mistakes, and one of those being the narrative form of the Bible. And as Tim Mackey and the Bible Project like to talk about, the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus, and it is just that, a story. And if we can't look at major sections of the Bible as narratives, as doing smart things that narratives do, then we lose so much of the richness of the scriptures. We lose so much of, of the beauty, of the subtlety, uh, as has been talked about on this channel. With Daniel, we lose that subtlety. So I'm going to bring some of that to the forefront today. I'm going to start somewhere. I'm going to start with another piece of work that um, might be very surprising. And warning here for any of you uh, that are listening, uh, that might have kids around or that um, don't like uh, language. There isn't too much language of what I'm going to read today, uh, but uh, there is some, so for, fair warning there. Um, but if you're worried about what I'm going to read from this book, just wait till I read from the Bible. So uh, today I wanted to talk about Stephen King, as I have before here, uh, and Heiser together actually. Um, but I want to talk about Stephen King and what he does in his novel It. Now I haven't finished it. I'm uh, I'm reading through through it right now. I can consider myself a King fan and not have read It. But uh, I'm going to play one more clip for you, and then we're going to get to the meat of of the discussion and more of me just reading and reflecting on some things. Um, but it's an old uh, um, Charlie Rose interview that King did, and. I think with Heiser's comments about the Bible, reading the Bible as fiction, and then King's talk about why his fiction is so popular, is very interesting. So I'll play the clip here. And I think that some of that stuff does have a tendency to last. What, both on the superficial level, at the top level, not superficial, but at the very top, what is it that makes it so attractive so it sells so many copies? Yours and others, what is it about the whatever? You don't call it horror, your work, horror. You don't call yourself a horror novelist for whatever reason. You but just said okay. suspense. But it's okay. I'm not yeah, suggesting you're I, putting it down. Right. You're not. But what is it that grabs an audience at the first level? Forbidden. Something that's forbidden. You're saying to somebody, uh, come with me and I will say things to you that nobody else will say. And uh, I will show you things that nobody else that dares to show to you. That is so horrible to imagine. Show to you. That's right. Um, and again, 
it shares the same attraction as comedy, which says the same thing. Uh, comedy uh, humor says, uh, uh, comedy humor. <laughs> Get me out of here. I just washed my mouth and I can't do a thing <laughs> with it. But uh, a movie that's really funny, that really makes people laugh, is generally saying, I'm going to show you something that you haven't seen before. So that when Mel Brooks did Blazing Saddles yeah. back in 74 or whatever it was, and the cowboys eat beans and then sit around the fire right. and they start to fart. Right. Well, nobody had ever heard anybody actually fart in a yeah. movie, and we all fell on the floor laughing. You know, right. it made that movie. So it was something that had been previously forbidden. You know, we all know about it. Yeah. We all know that people pass gas, but nobody had ever put it on the big screen before. And here, what are you doing? It's forbidden. Well, for instance, in uh, Pet Cemetery, uh, what I said was, here's something that we don't talk about. People sometimes have kids who die. There are terrible things that happen, um, and sometimes a child will die young. And in Pet Cemetery, that happened, and I followed the family through the grieving process, and then the father goes out to the graveyard and digs his, his son up and tries to bring him back to life. And there's, that can't happen. That is a total make-believe thing, just in case any of your viewers out there thought that they could dig people up and bring them back to life. It doesn't work that way. But in fiction, sometimes it can. And the important part about it, you know, I, I like to say that fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. And the truth that any person who's ever lost a child knows is that you wish you could bring them back to life. Mm -hmm. And the story explores what might happen if something like that could, could happen. So horror fiction, a lot of it, to me, is the lure of the forbidden. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we read from it and from the Bible. The allure is they're forbidden. That you're going to say things that other people won't say. Remember the scene in the movie that was made a few years ago where the bathroom gets full of blood. This is the what's not ex explicitly shown in the film, but this is part of that scene in the book. So just have that. If you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. You just have that in your head as I read. And we're looking for, because King does this throughout the whole book, we're looking for the ways that the childhood reflects adulthood of these characters. And that, by the way, I think is part of the brilliance of the monster. Pennywise returns every 27 years, the cyclical nature of things. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start reading. A gout of blood suddenly belched from the drain, splattering the sink and the mirror and the wallpaper from its frogs and lily pad patterns. Beverly screamed. Suddenly and piercingly, she backed away from the sink, struck the door, rebounded, clawed it open, and ran for the living room where her father was sitting, getting to his feet. What in the same hell's wrong with you? he asked, his brow drawing together. The two of them were here alone for the evening. Bev's mom was working the 3 to 11 shift at Green's Farm, Dairy's Best Restaurant. The bathroom, she cried hysterically. The bathroom, Daddy, in the, in the bathroom. Was, something, was someone peeking at you, Beverly? Huh? His arm shot out and his hand gripped her arm hard, sinking into the flesh. There was concern on his face, but it was predatory concern, somehow more frightening than comforting. No, the the, the sink, in, in the sink, the, the, she burst into hysterical tears before she could say anything more. Her heart was thudding so hard in her chest that she thought it would choke her. Al Marsh thrust her aside with an, oh Jesus, what's next, expression on his face and went to the bathroom. He was in there so long that Beverly became afraid again. Then he bawled, Beverly, you come in here, girl. There was no question of not going. If the two of them had been standing on the edge of a high cliff, 
and he had told her to step off. Right now, girl, her instinctive obedience would have almost certainly have carried her over the edge before her rational mind could have intervened. The bathroom door was open. There her father stood. A big man who was now losing the Auburn Harry had passed on to Beverly. He was still wearing his gray fatigue pants and his gray shirt. He was a janitor at the Dairy Home Hospital, and he was looking hard at Beverly. He did not drink. He did not smoke. He did not chase women. I get all the women I need at home, he said on occasion, and when he said it, a particular secretive smile would cross his face. It did not brighten it, but did quite the opposite. Watching the smile was like watching the shadow of a cloud travel rapidly across the rocky field. They take care of me, and when they need it, I take care of them. Now just what in the Sam hell is all this foolishness about? He asked as she came in. Billy felt as though her throat had been lined with slate. Her heart raced in her chest. She thought that she might vomit soon. There was blood on the mirror, running, on, running in long drips. There were spots of blood on the light over the sink. She could smell it, cooking on the 40-watt bulb. Blood ran down the porcelain sides of the sink and plopped in the fat drops on the linoleum floor. Daddy? She whispered huskily. He turned, disgusted with her, as he was so often, and began casually to wash his hands in the bloody sink. Good God, girl, speak up. You scared the hell out of me. Explain yourself, for Lord's sake. He was washing his hands in the basin. She could see blood staining the gray fabric of his pants as they rubbed against the lip of the sink. And if his forehead touched the mirror, it was close. It would be on his skin. She made a choke noise in her throat. He turned off the water, grabbed a towel on which two fans of blood ran from the drain and splashed, and began to dry his hands. She washed. He, she watched, near swooning, as he, grim, as he grimmed blood into the big knuckles and, li and lining of his palms. She could see blood under his fingernails like marks of guilt. Well, I'm waiting. He tossed the bloody towel back over the rod. There was blood, blood everywhere, and her father didn't see it. Daddy, she had no idea what might come next, but her father interrupted her. I worry about you, Almar said. I don't think you'll ever grow up. I don't think you're ever going to grow up, Beverly. You go out running around. You don't do hardly any of the homework around here. You can't cook. You can't sew. Half the time you're off on a cloud someplace with your nose stuck in a book, and the other half you've got vapors and, and migrams. I worry. His hand suddenly swung and, sp and spatted painfully against her buttocks. She uttered a cry, her eyes fixed on his. There was a tiny stripple of blood caught in his bushy eye right eyebrow. If I look at that long enough, I'll just go crazy, and none of this will, will matter, she thought dimly. I worry a lot, he said, and hit her again, harder on the arm above the elbow. That arm cried out and then seemed to go to sleep. She'd have a sprayed and yellowish-purple bruise there the next day. An awful lot, he said, and pushed her in the, and punched her in the stomach. He pulled the punch at the last second, and Beverly lost only half her air. She doubled over, gasping, tears starting in her eyes. Her father looked at her impassively. He shoved his bloody hands in the pockets of his trousers. You gotta grow up, Beverly, he said, and now his, his voice was kind and forgiving. Isn't that so? She nodded. Her head throbbed. She cried, but silently. If she sobbed aloud, started what her father called the baby whining. He might go to work on her in earnest. Al Marsh had lived his entire life in Derry and told people who asked him, and sometimes those who did not, 
that he had intended to be buried here, hopefully at the age of 110. No reason why I shouldn't live forever, he sometimes told Roger Roger Alter, who cut his hair once each month. I have no vices. Now explain yourself, he said, and make it quick. There was, she swallowed and it turned, and it hurt because there was no moisture in her throat, none at all. There was a spider, a big fat black spider. It crawled out of the drain and I, I, I guess it crawled back down. Oh, he smiled a little now as if pleased by this explanation. Was that it? Damn, if you'd have told me Beverly, I wouldn't have hit you. All girls are scared of spiders. Sam Hill, why didn't you speak up? He bent over the drain, and she had to bite her lip to keep from crying out of warning. And some other voice spoke deep inside her, some terrible voice, which could not have been part of her. Surely it was the voice of the devil himself. Let it get him, if it wants him. Let it pull him down. Good fucking riddance. She turned away from that voice in horror. To allow such a thought to stay for even a moment in her head would simply, would surely damn her to hell. He peered into the eyes of the drain, his hands squelched in the blood on the rim of the basin. Beverly fought grimly with his gorge. Her belly ached where she, her dad had hit her. Don't see a thing, he said. All these buildings are old, Bev. Got drains, got drains the size of freeways, you know. When I was janitor down at the old high school, we used to get drowned rats in the toilet bowls once in a while. It drove the girls crazy. He laughed fondly at the thought of such female vapors and migrams. Mostly, when the Kandeski was high. Less wildlife in the pipes since they put in the new drain system, though. He put an arm around her and hugged her. Look, you go to bed and don't think about it anymore, okay? She felt love for him. I never hit you when you don't deserve it, Beverly. He told her once when she cried out that some punishment had been unfair. And surely that had to be true. Because he was capable of love. Sometimes he would spend a whole day with her, showing her how to do things or just tell her stuff and walking around town with her. And when he was kind like that, she thought her heart would swell with happiness until it killed her. She loved him, and tried to be understanding that he had to correct her often, because it was, as he said, his God-given job. Daughters, Almarsh said, need more correction than sons. He had no sons, and she felt vaguely as if that might be partially her fault as well. Okay, Daddy, she said. I won't. They walked into her small bedroom together. Her right arm now ached fiercely from the blow it had taken. She looked back over her shoulder and saw the bloody sink, bloody mirror, bloody wall, bloody floor, the bloody towel her father had used and then hung casually over the rod. She thought, how can I ever go in there to wash up again? Please, God, dear God. I'm sorry if I had a a bad thought about my dad, and you can punish me for it if you want. I deserve to be punished. Make me fall down and hurt myself. Or make me have the flu like last winter when I coughed so hard I threw up. But please, God, make the blood be gone in the morning. Pretty please, God. Okay? Okay? Her father tucked her in as he always did and kissed her forehead. Then he only stood there for a moment in what would always think of as his way of standing, perhaps of being, bent slightly forward, hands plunged deeply to above the wrist in his pockets, the bright blue eyes of the mournful basset hound face looking down at her from above. In later years, long after she stopped thinking about Derry at all, 
she would see a man standing on the bus or maybe standing on a corner with the dinner bucket in his hand, shapes, oh, shapes of men, sometimes seen as day, day closed down, sometimes seen across Watertown Square in the noon light of the clear, windy autumn days, shapes of men, rules of men, desires of men, or Tom, so like her father, when he took off his shirt and stood slightly slumped in front of the bathroom mirror as he shaved, shapes of men. Sometimes I worry about you, Bev, he said. But there was no trouble or anger in his voice now. He touched her hair gently, smoothed the back from her forehead. Now he moved to her as an adult. In this scene, she's just got a call from Mike Hanlon to come back to Derry after 27 years. And her husband, who's much like her father, as we will see, doesn't want her to go at all. Not that they cared about who had called her or what she thought or where... Hmm. Not that they cared about who had called her or where she thought she was going since she wasn't going anywhere. Those were not the things which peculiarly, which peaked steadily in his mind, dully and achy from too much beer and not enough sleep. It was the cigarette. Supposedly, she had thrown them all out. But she had held out on him. The proof was clamped between her teeth right now. And because she still had not noticed him standing there in the doorway, he allowed herself the pleasure of remembering the two nights which had assumed him of his complete control over her. I don't want you to smoke around me anymore, he told her, as they headed home from the party in Lake Forest. October, that had been. I have to choke that shit down at parties and at the office, but I don't have to choke it down when I'm with you. You know what it's like? I'm going to tell you the truth. It's unpleasant, but it's the truth. It's like having to eat someone else's snot. He thought this would bring some faint spark of protest, but she had only looked at him in her shy, wanting-to-please way. Her voice had been low and meek and obedient. All right, Tom. Pitch it, then. She pitched it. Tom had been in good humor for the rest of that night. A few weeks later, coming out of a movie, she unthinkingly lit a cigarette in the lobby and puffed it as they walked across the parking lot to the car. It had been a bitter November night. The wind chopped like a maniac at, at any exposed square inch of flesh it could find. Tom remembered he had been able to smell the lake, as you sometimes could on cold nights a flat smell that was both fishy and somehow empty. He let her smoke the cigarette. He even opened her car door for her when they got to the car. He got in behind the wheel, closed his own door, and then said, Bev? She took the cigarette out of her mouth, turned toward him, inquiring, and he unloaded on her pretty good, his hard, open hand striking across her cheek, hard enough to make his palm tingle, hard enough to rock her head against the headrest. Her eyes widened with surprise and pain, and something else as well. Her own hand flew to her cheek to investigate the warmth and tingling numbness there. She cried out, Ow, Tom! He looked at her, eyes narrowed, mouth smiling, casually, casually, completely alive, ready to see what would come next, how she would react. 
His cock was stiffening in his pants, but he barely noticed. That was for later. For now, school was in session. He replayed what had just happened, her face. What had the third expression been? There for a bare instance, and then gone. For first, the surprise. Then the pain. Then the... Nostalgia? Look of a memory? Of some memory? It had only been there for a moment. He didn't think she even knew it had been there. On her face, or in her mind. Now. Now. It would all be the first thing she didn't say. He knew that as well as her own name. It wasn't, you son of a bitch. It wasn't, see you later, macho city. It wasn't, we're through, Tom. She only looked at him with her wounded, brimming hazel eyes and said, Why did you do that? She tried to say something else and burst into tears instead. Throw it out. What? What? Tom? Her makeup was running down her face in muddy tracks. He didn't mind that. He kind of liked seeing her that way. It was messy, but there was something sexy about it too. Slutty. Kind of exciting. The cigarette. Throw it out. Realization dawned, and with it, guilt. I just forgot, she cried. That's all. Throw it out, Bev. Or are you going to get another shot? He ro she rolled the window down and pitched the cigarette. Then she turned back to him, her face pale and scared and somehow serene. You can't, you aren't supposed to hit me. It's a bad basis for a, a, a lasting relationship. She was trying to find a tone, an adult rhythm of speech, and failing. He had regressed her. He was in the car with a child, voluptuous and sexy as hell, but a child. Can't and aren't are two different things. Heed, he said. He kept his voice calm, but inside he was jittering and jiving. And I'll be the one who decides what constitutes a lasting relationships and what doesn't. If you can't live with that, fine. If you, can't take, if you can take a walk, I won't stop you. I might kick you once in the ass as you're going away, present, but I won't stop you. It's free country. What more can I say? Maybe you've already said enough, she whispered, and he hit her, and he hit her again, harder than the first time, because no broad was ever going to smart off to Tom Rogan. He would pop the Queen of England if she cracked smart to him. Her cheek banged the padded dashboard. Her hand groped for the door handle and then fell away. She only crouched in the corner like a rabbit one hand over her mouth, her eyes large and wet and frightened. Tom looked at her for a moment, and then he got out and walked around to the back of the car. He opened the door. His breath was smoke in the black, windy November air, and the smell of the lake was very clear. You want to get out, Bev? I saw you reaching for the door handle, so I guess you want to get out. Okay, that's all right. I asked you to do something, and you said you would. Then you didn't. So you want to get out? Come on, get out. What the fuck, right? Get out. You want to get out? No, she whispered. What? I can't hear you. No, I don't want to get out. She was a little louder. What? Those cigarettes give you em emphysema? If you can't talk, I'll get you a fucking megaphone. That's the last chance, Beverly. You speak up so I can hear you. Do you want to get out of this car or do you want to come back with me? want to come back with you, she said, and clasped her hands on her skirt like a little girl. She wouldn't look at him. Tears slipped down her cheeks. All right. 
he said. Fine. But first you say this for me, Bev. You say, I forgot about smoking in front of you, Tom. Now she looked at him, her eyes wounded, pleading, inarticulate. You can make me do this, her eyes said, but please don't. Don't. I love you. Can't it be over? No, it couldn't, because this was not the bottom of her wanting, and both of them knew it. Say it. I forgot about smoking in front of you, Tom. Good. Now say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, she repeated dully. The cigarette lay smoldering on the pavement like a cut piece of fuse. People leaving the theater glanced over at them. The man standing by the open passenger door of a late model faded into a woodwork vega, the woman sitting inside, her hands clasped primly in her lap, her head down, the dome light outlining the soft fall of her hair in gold. He crushed the cigarette out, smearing it against the black top. Now say, I'll never do it again without your permission. I'll never... Her voice began to hitch. Never... Say it, Bev. Never... do it again without your permission. So he had slammed the door and gone back around to the driver's seat. He got behind the wheel and drove them back to his downtown apartment. Neither of them said a word. Half the relationship had been set in the parking lot. The second half was set 40 minutes later in Tom's bed. So what's going on here? Well, King is, in ways that are forbidden, let's say, not talked about, hushed, said in private circles, said in whispers, said in shelters, that the things of our childhood, the things we grow accustomed to, the way relationships work in the past are going to affect the way that we see relationships in the future. And now bear in mind, he isn't painting these fathers or husbands as good people. But he isn't censoring them either, and I choose that word deliberately. Because then it wouldn't be the forbidden. It would be the normal. And he's using these parallels of the ways that Beverly's father would talk to her about not growing up, about staying a child, his abuse, yet his love and the love she feels for him as a parallel to the way that she is treated and lets herself be treated by her husband. Why? Not necessarily because it's her fault, but because it's what's happened before. It's what she's used to. It's a certain expression of love, in her mind at least. And that's the difficult part. But that's also the beauty of these passages. They show us certain things going on here in characters' minds and the way they perceive things and the way that Beverly looks at men in particular. And there's that passage at the end of the first portion I read you where it talks about Tom, her husband, you know, being a striking image of her father. 
as if you read the book chronolo if you read the book in in order an image that harkens back to how he her husband tom treats her as she's an adult when you see these scenes of her as a child but and the point i'm trying to make here is not necessarily about the content itself although it's very it's it is forbidden and it's interesting and again it's not to victim blame as uh is such a i don't even anyway or anything like that it's just meant to say that that and this is what i think king is so good at the way he understands humans the way he understands how we operate that things are actually quite complicated right the Beverly isn't just acting like this, and it's drawn out beautifully in the language about her her regressing, that's the word he uses, into a child, the way she sits, the way she looks, the way she speaks to Tom, all harkens back to, uses language that's meant to draw your mind to her as a child, because that's what's going on. This isn't to justify Tom or her father, not at all, not at all. They're evil and villainous people. But it's meant to say, how do these experiences affect Beverly Marsh? And they're subtle, they're subtle parallels. They're in the, the posture of characters. They're in, the, in, in certain phrases that are used within the two passages. They're in the her dad slapping her, her buttocks and then her husband saying, you know, if you want to leave, I might give you a sweet kick in the ass as a going away present. It's subtle. It's subtle. But it does a lot to the attentive reader to pick up on these things. So there's an example from fiction about the way that things are used, the way that authors, King in particular in this example, is drawing on things of the past. But you'd be foolish to think that the Bible is the only place that does this, or that the Bible is also the only place that does this. Or, sorry, the king is the only place that does this with themes of this nature. And maybe it's the uh, correlation of themes here um, that are that drew this in my head in the first place. But maybe that says more about me than, than the work itself. But I, I want to talk about Genesis. And Genesis has been of, of particular interest to me. Of the past few years, uh, thanks to Martin and the Bama podcast, I'm going to be referencing that here in a minute. But particularly this this flavor of reading the Bible as fiction, as is is pretty is I think especially helpful in in, in the Book of Genesis. Uh, not to say that Genesis isn't doing some kind of history, although what kind of history I'm not exactly sure, especially in the first few chapters. But it's another conversation for another day. It's another piece to this puzzle. But I want to talk about Genesis 37 and Genesis 38. Now, Genesis 37 is the beginning of Joseph's story. 
Joseph, son of Jacob. The lineage is given in the first bit of chapter 37. As we know, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. So I'm going to read that passage here now. This is Genesis 37. Uh, I'll start in... Uh, I'll start in the end of 17, and I'm reading, uh, I'm going to read from the ESV. So give me just a second. There we go. I'm going to read from the ESV. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Another conversation for another day. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, well, Who are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said to him, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go down to, Doth, to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. Then we will say what a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the, out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a cavern of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gom, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, remember Judah, then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us send him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be up be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. That's the end of 37. If we jumped to Genesis 38, something interesting you might find is the fact that it doesn't continue the Joseph story. Why, you might ask. It stops to tell a story about Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law. 
So Judah moves, has a family with a Canaanite. She bears sons. One of them gets married. And then the brother, he dies. His brothers take his wife, as is custom in the day, to give her male heirs and to carry on the family name. Um, But Onan, he did not want to do this. So whenever he slept with her, he'd spill his semen on the ground. And then, because of this, he was put to death by the Lord. Verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah sends his daughter-in-law away, tells her to go live with your dad, because I have a son that I can give you, but he's not old enough yet. And I don't want him to die as well. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tamah, to his sheep herders, to his sheep hearers, interesting, and his friend Hira, the Adamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tuna to shear his sheep, sheep shearers, I read that word wrong. So she hears this. Tamar knows about her father-in-law coming up here. Listen to what she does. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat in the entrance of Enim, which is on the road, Timnon, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage, so Judah didn't keep his promise. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. The ESV is not uh, subtle when it comes to sexual connotations in the Bible. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your sign and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. I'm going to skip that paragraph. He goes around asking uh, after the... When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge back out of the woman's hand, so he sends a servant to go get to go get his stuff back because he's going to send her the goat as payment. And he goes around asking, is there the cult prostitute here? Is there a prostitute here? And everyone, in, uh, everyone there says, no, there's not a cult prostitute. And he says, I haven't found her. And Judah said, let her keep the things as her own. We shall be laughed at, you see. I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, 
has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned, because he didn't know who she was when he slept with her. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify. Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. So Genesis 37 tells the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. And Judah says, no, 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 let's not kill him. Come on, come on, we're better than that. Let's sell him into slavery. Let's sell him into slavery. And then they kill a goat. They take his coat. And they go to their father. And they say, can you identify? Do you recognize whose jacket this is? And then the next chapter, the next story in Genesis, jumps ahead to Judah as an older man with sons and family and a daughter-in-law can't get pregnant, and whose sons keep getting killed by God, which is another conversation for another day, possibly. But he sends her away, and he doesn't fulfill his promise of giving her his other son. And so she dresses up like a prostitute, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and he's given her his staff and his cord and his signet, things of value to him as a promise that he's going to pay her. It's her leverage. But she has more leverage than just that. She's cunning. And he sends the goat, the goat, the same thing that they killed, to dip the robe in, as payment for their, uh, for their time together. And he can't find her because he doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. And then later he hears, oh, your daughter-in-law has been immoral, and more so, she's pregnant. And he says, all right, let's deal with this. Let us burn her. And then she's, okay, fine, but I want one thing first. Please identify. Tell me if you know whose these are. Because they're yours. And this is the thing. This is the beauty of these two stories that sit right next to each other. And I'll put this on the screen. And Marty brings this up in Bema. It's the same word. It's the same word in Hebrew that's used. It's called nakar. And it means to recognize, to acknowledge, to discern. And if you, now, this wouldn't be the case on a scroll necessarily, but if you put the, the, the pages next to each other, as he does here in this, in this picture, they're almost happening on, this, on the, the equal parts on each side of the page. 
They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And he recognized it. And Judah said, Bring her out to burn her. And she was being brought out, and she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And Judah recognized them. And I can only imagine that in Judah's mind, at that very moment when he hears these words, whether by a messenger or by her herself, see if you recognize. Nakar, do you notice what's going on here? Do you see? And Judah, his mind flashing back to that scene in front of his dad, when him and his brothers had sold his, other, had sold their youngest brother, and went and said, "Dad, do you recognize whose cloak this is?" And she asked him, "Do you recognize whose these are?" It's a beautiful narrative, subtle parallels going on here. Subtle, very very subtle words, words that are being repeated, words of characters, future past times in their life that ring like a gunshot because they bring back memories they bring back scenes and this right here in the bible is using these narrative techniques to tell us more about these characters to tell us more about these things that happen to call our attention to the beautifully crafted narrative in Genesis. Do you recognize? Do you see? Can you nakar the things that are going on here? And maybe, just maybe, if we started to read the Bible as fiction, not because it's fiction, and not because it isn't doing true things. If you don't think King is talking about true things in it, you don't get it. You're missing the point. But the way that the Bible is using narrative is using these subtle, subtle details. Words that get repeated in characters' lives. Scenes that look similar, but aren't quite. If we see those in a fiction story, in a beautiful and well-crafted narrative and novel. Why would we not expect to see them in the narratives of the Bible? Because they're there to talk about this great story. And if we truly believe that we are invited to be part of the greatest story Why would we not expect it to act like one? And maybe, again, if we learn to read the Bible as fiction, we'd see this thing more often. It's inviting us. It's speaking of things that we would never want to talk about. And it's doing things in subtle ways, very narrative smart things, that if you're keen, if you listen, if you see, you own the car. You will recognize. 
that's all I got for you today. Uh, yeah. So, I'll probably do, be making more stuff like this. Uh, yeah. I'm reading Dune right now, and there's certain things in the way Frank Herbert, uh, initially, I will say, frames, um, Moadib, Paul, that are helpful and interesting. Ways in which he talks about prescience and uh, visions and prophecy. We don't have time for all that right now, but maybe in the future. Anyway, and I I might put this at the beginning, but quick caveat. Uh, I am, if I react to or read something, uh, I'm never going to censor what I read or what I react to, be it videos or movies. Because I, as an artist myself, I think it's really unfair. It's not true to the nature of the original work. Uh, and I would never, ever want someone to bring that back on me and censor me because I say things or do things or portray things that they find distasteful. Um, so, yeah. And if you're mad about, don't like... What I read in it, uh, I think what I read in the Bible is far worse as far as uh, the sins and atrocities being committed and being betrayed. So think about that for a second before you leave me an angry comment about me reading from it and reading such vulgar stuff. Um, think about how vulgar what we read in Genesis 37 and especially 38 are before you say anything. So that's all I got. See you in the next one.